Thank you all for taking time on a Saturday to really just want to learn and grow and figure out how we can together better represent Christ, better live to God's glory in the Bay Area. It's no small thing in our busy culture to take a chunk of your time out. So I just want to thank you guys all for coming here. I also want to say before I pray and open up on the message, here's the irony of, of preaching about division and preaching about unity. I'm going to say some challenging things. And many of us, because we're programmed in very theological and biblical kind of uh, settings we come from, you're going to be tempted to sit back and think, wow, that's not biblical. Or you're going to be, so what I'm asking you to do today is just to, as we're walking through the scriptures and understanding it, and, and I'm introducing us to some kind of challenging conversations, is just to think through, is it true? Is it from the text? Is it represented in the history of, of our country? Is it represented in what Paul's trying to do here? I think the biggest danger we have sometimes is taking really challenging texts like 1 Corinthians and we want to apply it to its original historical setting. That's fantastic. But then when we're trying to build that bridge from their time to our time, we take ourselves out of the crosshairs and we learn from a distance. Rather than saying, God preserved this book for a reason, to encourage me, to challenge me, to correct me, what about what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage right here does God want me square in the crosshairs for? What does God want me to learn? What is, how does God want me to be challenged? What does God want us all together today to learn for his glory and for the sake of the mission of Jesus Christ in the Bay Area? So please pray with me and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for preserving the book of 1 Corinthians for us. We thank you for what this book has done throughout the history of your church in all times and in all places to equip your people to live where they are for your glory and for the sake of the mission of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to clearly and faithfully proclaim your word. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us in here this morning to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to be challenged where we need to be challenged, and to be corrected where we need to be corrected. I pray that we would put our hope today in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I pray that you would help us to understand our identity in a deep enough way that we can have the courage to change and live differently. And I pray, Lord, most of all, that your Holy Spirit would be present with all of us, and especially me as I preach, to help us learn and grow together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not difficult to say that we live in increasingly divided times. And the challenge of living in increasingly divided times, if we know from Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, is that every human being is created in God's image, to live with him and to live for him. So we are created for, for a unity of commonality. We are created to have a commonality across all humanity. But we know that sin and brokenness and human rebellion ha have shattered that throughout history. And so now we no longer know how to do, naturally, a unity of commonality. All we know how to do for the most part, and this is in the church and in the culture, is a unity of opposition against the other. Where we derive our legitimacy by being more right or more correct or more of whatever than the other group. Let me give you a simple illustration of this. In our, in our culture, in our movies, when is the only time you see all humanity uniting and saying we are one? It's alien invasion. <laughs> there always has to be an other for us in our culture, and unfortunately in the church sometimes, and then Corinth back then, and in our church today, so often there always has to be another. And so we look at our culture and we see that those on the extreme ends of the right and the left, their ideologies become their identity. And, and the problem is when your ideology becomes your identity, then someone disagreeing with you 
isn't just someone you can have a cordial conversation with. They are someone that's threatening the very way you built your identity. Now, we know this in the church that, that my identity is in Christ. Every single one of us in here would say, my identity is in Jesus. But here's the truth. If my identity is truly in Jesus and it's not reachable or touchable by political ideology, you can just be a brother or sister that disagrees with me. You can't just be my non-Christian neighbor that views politics differently than I do. And I can stand in that gap as a peacemaker and a minister of reconciliation and have the kinds of conversations that we need to have in our culture and our society. I don't have to divide from you. I don't have to separate myself from you because I'm not finding my legitimacy and my confidence around what I believe. But we have to be honest with ourselves. And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's what John did with us earlier this morning, right? Ground them deeply in their identity in Jesus. So they can then face the areas of their lives where they're going to need to change, where they're going to need to live differently. The reality is the church in Corinth was living a whole lot more like the culture in Corinth than it was like the kingdom of God. And I think for us so often we live more like our culture than we do the kingdom. There's a concept in the academic world that they call identity politics. And so according to most of those academics, each of our identities is, is socially constructed. Who you are is a combination of the social environment you were raised in, the decisions you made about who you want to be. And a lot of what they're saying kind of makes sense. That, that things like your clothes, your cars, your education, your job choice, the music you listen to or don't listen to, bands you follow or don't follow, art you like or don't like, your hairstyle, your shoes, the television programs you watch or don't watch, the movie taste, on and on and on. All those things say something about the way you've constructed your identity. They say something about how your desires are being shaped and, and how you want to exist in this world. And so those academics would then tell you that Christianity is no different. It's a social construction. You've adopted to yourself certain you know, philosophies or certain uh, ways of viewing the world, and so it's no different. It's a socially constructed identity. So if I were to ask you the question, why isn't Christianity or why shouldn't Christianity be in the category of identity politics, what would you say? Well, if I were to just say, isn't it one among many socially constructed identity, what would you say? Well, here's what we know from redemptive history. Here's what we know from Scripture. Here's what we know from how we've seen God work throughout the history of the world. Christianity, being a follower of Christ, it's not a social movement. Being, being a Christian is not a socially constructed identity. Being a Christian is not merely adopting a series of external behaviors or, or following a certain set of rules or trying to become a better person. Following Jesus is not about moral uh, conformity. It's not about your philosophy. None of that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian? God does, right? He radically regenerates you through the power of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Jesus to adopt you into his family to make you his own. It's a supernatural inside-out transformation. And so it's not an external thing that you put on. It's an internal thing where God begins to transform you, and then he wants to teach you about what it means to be a member of his family. But if we lose sight of that, as the church in Corinth did, and we begin to build our Christian identity in the same way that our culture does, it's not hard to see how it can get off track in a hurry. Our confidence needs to be in the God that has radically transformed us, brought us from death to life, and then our identity needs to be shaped. We need to allow God to shape our desires. We need to allow God to shape our ideology. And we need to, we need to have a clear sight into where all these things are, are playing, their, playing out in our lives. The Apostle Paul was not somebody that had an intellectual epiphany on the road to Damascus, was he? He had an encounter with Christ and God transformed him. In the same way, God regenerates you. He makes you a new creation. He recreates you in Christ's image. He makes you his dearly loved daughter. He makes you his dearly loved son. 
That's why the Apostle Paul opened this letter up to the Corinthians, reminding them of who they were in Christ. Reminding them that you are united to Jesus and you're united to each other, but you're not living like it. He takes them not to a, a whole bunch of things they need to change and do. He takes them back to their core root identity so they can understand that and then build back up from it. He tells them that division is not acceptable for them because they've been transformed. They've been united. They've been brought into God's family. That, that to live divided while you're proclaiming to be a Christian is living against your very identity. See, broken human nature, it's natural to divide. But they're in Christ. And so we are called to live differently, not because we're trying to put on something that we're not, but because we're trying to bring out something that God's already done. We have the power to unite and to love and to serve because of what God's doing in our midst. It might be natural for humanity to divide, but we know that Christ is ever and always uniting, right? What's he doing? He's reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation is the core of what he's doing. Bringing together, uniting is, is the core part of who Jesus is, and it's supposed to be a core part of who we are. So with that in mind, listen to the words the Apostle Paul gives them in the opening here. Starting in verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the whole household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ would be emptied of its full effect or of its effect. What Paul is pointing them back to here is because of what Jesus has done for them because of the work of the cross, because of God's work of adopting them and uniting them together, that they should be able to look at themselves and, and not divide any more than you can divide the body of Christ itself. He is pointing them back to who they are so they can then build back how they're supposed to exist in this world. So the main idea we're going to look at today is just humanity divides, but Christ unites. So the first chunk of the message, we're going to look at the ways in which humanity divides and the ways in which the church in Corinth was kind of mirroring that and some of the ways in which our church today maybe mirrors that. And then we're going to look at how Christ unites. And then what the Apostle Paul is, is, is asking them to do in this passage is to speak with one voice, to have the mind of Christ and to speak with one voice. And my question for all of us is going to be today, if the church in the Bay Area were to speak with one voice, what would it say? across denominations, across traditions, across whatever it is, just brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll notice the Apostle Paul in the opening verses, as John preached on earlier, he points them five or six different times to their connection to the wider body of Christ. Paul is, in essence, rooting their ability to solve their own local division by pointing them to the fact that there's something bigger and greater going on there, that you are together with all the saints who in every place call out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He's saying there's something bigger going on out here than this. Do we believe that? Do you have a vision for the kingdom of God beyond your local church? Do you have a vision for the kingdom of God 
beyond your denomination? Do you have a vision for the kingdom of God beyond the theological parameters that you've decided to define your Christian life by? Now, so you don't misunderstand me, I've given basically the entire uh, adult years of my life to studying doctrine. I believe that doctrine is deeply important. But if I'm going to go to Scripture and say doctrine's deeply important, what doctrine? And where should it ultimately end? If I take Christ's prayer in John 17 where he's telling us that, that if he's praying for us, that we would know him deeply and we would be united to him deeply. And, and what's the fruit of being united to him deeply in John 17? That brothers and sisters in Christ are as united to each other as the father and son are. And that when that happens, he unleashes the power of the gospel and the world will know that Jesus is sent. There's a whole logic in here. So, so in other words, to put it simply, you can't claim that you love doctrine so much, that you love Jesus so much, that you hate this other group. Right? If you're a Calvinist, you can't claim that you love Jesus so much that you hate Arminians. If you're an Arminian, you can't claim that you love Jesus so much that you hate Calvinists. It just doesn't work. It, it, it's not reconcilable with Scripture. It doesn't mean that you can't believe deeply in your doctrine, but if your doctrine is not leading you to a place of greater love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and greater love and unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're missing something. I'm missing something to the degree that happens. And we're going to unpack this more. So, again, I told you I'd probably offend some of y'all, but that's okay. So remember who Paul was. Paul could not have been more divided from those that called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he wanted them dead. But because he was radically transformed by the power of Jesus, he goes from being their greatest adversary to the greatest advocate of the gospel message. That this was not a, theo a theoretical proposition for Paul. Paul knew that the power of Jesus Christ could take a man who had a hateful heart like his, who was bent on the destruction of the church, and so transform him that he would be willing to do anything, even give his own life for these people. Based on what? Based on the fact that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Based on the fact that they shared a place in God's family with them. So he wanted the Corinthians to experience the power that he already experienced. And he knew that if there was divisions in their midst, that they weren't having a full vision of who he was. He knew that they were so caught up in their culture in Corinth that they weren't seeing clearly to what God wanted them to see. Jacques Ellul, who was a, a scholar and an academic and a pastor for a good chunk of the 20th century, um, a French guy, um, has a, a book called Propaganda. I'm going to read a quote from it. And what he means by propaganda isn't, isn't um, that you're being forced to believe something that's wrong necessarily. It's just how you shape how you view things in the world. We all think that we're objective. We sit down before the Bible and we just see things clearly, right? Listen to what Alol says. And this was in 1962. This guy was a prophet. Those who read the press of their group and listen to the radio of their group are constantly reinforced in their allegiance. Man, in his time, they were dependent upon the radio and the press. In our time, you have instant access to this, continual instant access. They learn more and more that their group is right, that its actions are justified. Thus, their beliefs are strengthened. At the same time, such propaganda contains elements of criticism and refutation of other groups which will never be read or heard by a member of another group. Thus we see before our eyes how a world of closed minds establishes itself, a world in which everybody talks to himself, everybody constantly views his own certainty about himself and the wrongs done to him by the others, a world in which nobody listens to anybody else. Do we see that in our culture? How much are we wrapped up in, is the fruit of your time in the word, 
and the fruit of your time in the, in the, in, on the internet or on social media is the fruit of that time, a greater love for Jesus and a greater love for the kingdom of God, meaning all your brothers and sisters, no matter their denomination or tradition, or is the fruit your right and their wrong? To what degree are we building our identity around our rightness, maybe even more than our commonality in Jesus Christ? I know I've done it a lot. I come from a Reformed evangelical tradition. We're really good at it, right? I can tell you why I'm right and all these other folks are wrong. But do I spend more time doing that than I say, you know what? If they believe in God and they're trusting in Christ for their salvation, they're called a brother or a sister hard stop. Doesn't mean we can have the same level of partnership and connection as we do with, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying your heart orientation. Is it one to love and unite, if at all possible, or is it one to find fault? We're here at a gospel coalition event. I've seen gospel centrality be used in this way. Again, it's fine to understand your preference on preaching and wanting to see Christ robustly preached. I believe in that. I've given my life to that. But do you use it to wield and destroy the credibility or integrity of other churches? I've heard this, right, a lot in the Bay Area. You know, it's, it's an okay church, and they're growing, but they're not gospel-centered. You know, that guy, he's a really gifted communicator, but he's not, he's not gospel-centered. What would it really look like to be gospel-centered? I would argue that it's, it, it's, a, it's a lifelong project to view everything in your life through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if I truly saw another church that is full of people, and it's not gospel-centered, it's not preaching Jesus— I can condemn it and separate myself from it. Or maybe I go grab coffee with that pastor. And, and I lean into it and I, and I pray for him and I, and I try to work for a more robust ministry of Jesus going on, right? Why wouldn't I do that? Well, the only reason I wouldn't do it is if I don't really view that other pastor or that other church as full of brothers and sisters in Christ, as my family. If they're not my family, I don't give a rip. Right? But if, if my if one of my kids is in trouble, I drop everything and I go help. If my brother needs something, I go, I go help him, right? Because we're family. And so if I really view this, that this is the power of what we can do here. If you have a really robust view of Jesus, you ought to have people that are affected all around you by an increasing love for Jesus. I was raised Roman Catholic, got saved when I was 14. Um, but I have a lot of friends that I've seen get saved out of a pretty legalistic Roman Catholic background. And they come in and they want to hammer away at all of their Roman Catholic relatives and tell them why they're wrong and why they're wrong and why they're wrong and why they're wrong. And I've told these guys this over and over again. I said, you want your family members to come away from you thinking, wow, does he love Jesus? Not, wow, does he hate the Pope? I mean, what's the fruit of your conversations? What's the fruit of my conversations? Whether they're person to person or on Twitter, or on Facebook, or whatever else. Is it, wow, does he love Jesus? Or is it, wow, man, that guy doesn't like anybody. What, what, what's, the, what, what's the one voice in, in Christianity, if there is one, in the country saying today? Is it saying we're united in Christ? Or is it saying we're divided by our ethnicity, our politics, and everything else? It, it's, it's a bleak time, but this is where the Apostle Paul's words come in so powerfully. The Apostle Paul is addressing them as brothers and sisters. He's pointing them back to their deeper identity as the family of God. He's not telling them to just do better in their own power. He's pointing to the power of Christ that's already at work within them. 
The Apostle Paul 37 times in this letter calls them brothers and sisters. More than any other epistle. Why does he do that? Because this is a broken church. And he wants them to understand and root their identity in the fact that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that they're sons and daughters of God. He's pointing them back to the transformation that God is already doing. And he's pointing to the fact that, guys, you're being shaped more by your culture than you are by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing them to a genuine unity. He tells them that you would all agree that there would be no divisions among you, that you would be united in the same mind with the same judgment. He's telling them that you should be so, like, in, you should be so founded, so grounded in your identity in Jesus that you're united in the way you think. And you think, well, how could you be united in the way? I mean, there's all kinds of different ways of viewing things. So that gets you to what he's talking about, right? What does it really mean to have the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ? We'll get into that a little bit later, but, but at its core, it's this mission that Jesus Christ has to redeem and renew the whole world and those that he calls into his family, right, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the basic gospel message, but then, then we, we often stop there, and we don't look then at when Jesus does that, when he brings redemption and transformation, when he brings forgiveness of sin, when he brings atonement, when he brings all these things, there's fruit afterwards. And the fruit afterwards is you're adopted into God's family, and he teaches you how to love and serve. So in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul could say, have the mind of Christ among you. You know, Christ came to love and to serve and lay down his life. So what should you do? You should love and serve and lay down your life. It's not very hard to see what Scripture is teaching on these things. But we get so caught up sometimes in the precision of our theological formulations that we can lose sight of the bigger things of what God wants to do. See, the world can't do unity without scapegoating and rivalry and all kinds of nastiness without unity of opposition against the other. The only ones that can do unity of commonality across ethnicity, across socioeconomic bounds, the only ones that can do that are followers of Jesus because we've been redeemed and renewed and transformed. We can stand in the gaps. We can be united, and oftentimes we aren't. The, the world can do unity temporarily, right? We've seen it. We saw it in what seems like ancient history when the San Francisco Giants won three World Series every other year, right? I drove through the Civic Center area after one of the victories, and there was a big friend of mine that was there who this guy grew up fighting. He loves Jesus now, so he doesn't fight anymore. But he grew up fighting. He's a guy you would not want to mess with. This guy had a complete stranger pour champagne all over his head. In any other context, that doesn't end well. But they were so united as Giants fans that it didn't matter to them. Their greater unity as a fan of the Giants was enough to push through the affront of having, like, champagne poured all over your head. The unity we have should be so powerful, so transformative, so founded in sacrificial love that it enables us to push through just about anything. Except for someone that wants to deny or blaspheme and say Jesus isn't who he says he is, right? But even then, that's someone you want to reach for Jesus. I just don't see very many grounds for the kind of division that we see today in our churches in God's word. And if you want to challenge me about that after, come up and talk to me. Because it's just not there. Again, God talks about caring for doctrine deeply. But doctrine ultimately leads you to be grounded in Christ. So the call of what God's calling us to do is, is really clear here. But the reality for us is that we see divisions on a daily basis. All of humanity, humanity naturally divides. And the city of Corinth had gotten particularly good at it. If you want to go back and look at the history, it was divided by social status, by wealth, by power, by ethnicity, by religious belief. You name it, they divided over it. And the church, they got saved, they came in, and for a minute, it was pretty cool, it was new, it was great, but then 
they started dividing along the same lines. Even using the names of their leaders, even using the name of Jesus himself as a power play about their own superiority. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. Why do you say that? Even the person that says, I'm of Jesus, right? Why are they saying that? I am better than you. My group is more right than your group. And the Apostle Paul is like, that makes no sense. Doing that is like trying to dismember Christ himself. It's not compatible with your Christian identity. But my challenge is, if I'm really honest with myself, and I unpack the cultures I've been raised in, how do I view others? How do you view others? Right? How are you viewing me right now? Depends on if you like what I'm saying, probably. Right? But you're slicing and dicing, and you're dissecting. And again, some of that's unavoidable, but what's informing the way I view other human beings? What informs the way I view someone that's from a different theological tradition? What informs the way I view someone that's from a different ethnicity? Do I even know? Do you even know? Do you know what shaped you? To the degree that you don't know, it's probably not imitation of Christ. Now, if I'm honest again, my view of humanity, I, I love people until they get in a car. They are an image bearer of God entitled to dignity, to worth, to honor, and to love. Unless they're in front of me or they cut me off on the street. And so I've learned that I have to get really good at this. I've got three boys. They're 18, 13, and 10. Um, and I realize that I don't quite have road rage, but I have maybe road disdain. <laughs> I will freely comment on the inadequate driving skills of anyone else that's around me in the car. But I've realized I'm raising kids, and I'm maybe starting to impart what I'm doing to them. I'm discipling them in all the wrong ways. And so for like a six months, eight months maybe, I had a concerted effort to just not say anything when I was in the car. To say, oh, that's not wise. Or just to, you know, substitute in words. <laughs> and I'm pretty proud of myself at this point, right? And my, my youngest son was then like eight years old at the time, and he's like me in every good and bad way. And he's sitting in the back seat, and some guy cuts us off and, and almost gets in an accident with us because he's being an idiot. Um, <laughs> but because I'm sanctified now, I didn't say anything. And I'm sitting up there kind of proud of myself going, Lord, you see that? And from the back seat, my eight-year-old, that guy's an idiot, huh, Dad? <laughs> and I said, no, son, he's an image bearer of God. A very broken image bearer that clearly needs redemption and salvation, but he's an image bearer of God. But if we carry that out, who am I, who are you willing to dehumanize? And by dehumanize, I mean look at and say, you are not entitled to dignity, to worth, and to honor, and to love. Who, are you who, who do you justify dehumanizing in that way? Again, whether it's on social media or whatever it is, all of us have a group of people, we, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's ethnic, whether it's political, there are some people that you have made it okay to dehumanize. There are some Christians that you have made it okay to, to basically treat them like they're not actually brothers and sisters in Christ. But we have to be honest about this. And, and if you can't name me the groups that you're tempted to naturally dehumanize, then you have all kinds of parts of yourself that are being shaped and you don't even have a clue. 
we have to be honest with ourselves and to go in deep and, and, and really ask God to show us, hey, where are my prejudices? Where am I not showing the love of Jesus out broadly? Right? The only people that Jesus spoke harshly to were the religious people. And oftentimes today, those are the only people that have large followings on social media by Christians. Anyway, I won't go any deeper than that. We got to come face to face with the reality of who we are, and it's a good thing. It's so much of the Bible is trying to really just show us what reality is. It's not a whole series of heroes. It's like Pastor John was talking about earlier. If God wanted us to have this vision for what a beautiful, glorified humanity could look like, of people that were just pristine and clean and awesome, we wouldn't have had Abraham, Isaac, David, etc., etc. And you wouldn't have me and you wouldn't have you. God only has broken humanity to work with. And so when he shows us the ways in which we're broken, it's a work of grace in our lives. One of the reasons I love reading a lot from Nelson Mandela is he has a way of viewing his culture, had a way of viewing his culture and society in a way that was brutally honest but also hopeful. And he has this idea in his autobiography. He says, the process of illusion and disillusionment is part of life and goes on endlessly. And I was thinking about that for a while. He ultimately is arguing that disillusionment's a good thing. It's a gift from God. That it was only when he saw fully how South Africa was broken and, and for how it was really broken, that he had hope for maybe it could be changed. He also made the point that, that the, good, the, other, the good thing about disillusionment is when you're disillusioned, we're, we're tempted to think it's discouraging or it's a bad thing. But when I'm disillusioned, when I'm shown the truth about something, what does it mean? It means I'm no longer believing in something that was only a lie or an illusion to begin with. Would you rather go on believing the lie or believing the illusion? Or would you rather have God show you who you are? So the Apostle Paul does this throughout the epistles. I would say the prophets, all of them, are one giant project of God to disillusion people that think they're his and they're not. Over and over again in the prophets, he tells them, you think you're following me, you're not, and here's why. You think you're this, you're not, and here's why. Quick sidebar, interestingly enough, one of the primary ways God uses to show that his people or people that call themselves his people that they're not his people is how they treat the most vulnerable in their midst. Isn't that crazy? What if you evaluated other churches by how they treat the most vulnerable in their midst instead of by how they dot every I and cross every T? And when I say you, I mean myself too. Right? There are churches that, that, that I don't align with theologically. But dang, some of those churches are so beautifully, wonderfully gifted at reaching people that are on the margins, at loving and serving people that are on the margins in ways that I don't even have an imagination for. And so I've tried to get better over the years of saying, God, praise you for how you're using them. And, and maybe I can learn from them how to better love and serve your people and the people we have in front of us. The bottom line is we all need to be disillusioned. The Corinthians needed to be disillusioned. Paul wants them to understand what they think they are is not what it is. But he wants to point them to a greater and deeper and more beautiful and wonderful reality of what living a life of union with Christ actually looks like. Think about the history of what God has in Scripture and that he lays it out here for us fully. From Cain and Abel to Joseph's brothers throwing him in the pit, it's one endless thing of rivalry and division. But there's always a glimpse of hope, isn't there? There's always glimpses of this messianic hope that God's going to bring. Even Joseph was secure enough in the love of his heavenly father to forgive his brothers. That story can be so familiar that we just read past it. But Joseph was the right man to Pharaoh. Egyptian law and all ancient Near Eastern law and custom would have mandated that Joseph kill or at least imprison his brothers. 
but he had a deeper understanding than his culture did of what humanity was. He had a deeper understanding of love and forgiveness through his relationship with his heavenly father to know that forgiveness is the way forward. And he forgives his brothers and restores relationship. And there's a lot of complexities to that story, but we see this over and over again about how God is unveiling in Scripture rivalry and scapegoating and cycles of violence and all this nonsense so he can point us to a greater hope of what we have. And my question for us is, are we listening? Corinth is a mess. This is the temptation again. Corinth is a mess. My church isn't as bad as this. Right? So I'm okay. Or what does this have to say to me and my church? How am I really shaping my identity? Who am I scapegoating to feel more legitimate about? One, one challenge I had, I feel like God laid this on my heart years back. There's a lot of blogs and websites that I love and I read and I appreciate. But I went back and I asked, if I just count up all the entries on this blog, what percentage of them are pointing me to my identity in Christ and how to robustly live out of that in a way that glorifies and honors God and loves and serves others? That's one category. Versus what percentage of them are trying to point me to a legitimacy identity by opposition against the other? Here's why your group's right and this group sucks. Interesting thing, right? What would it look like in the Christian world if we spent a whole lot more time meditating and writing on the deep things of God and the personal work of Jesus Christ and how that plays out? And again, there's a, there's a time and a place and an absolute necessity to defend the faith. I just think a lot of times when we think we're defending the faith, we're defending our own identity and our rightness against others' wrongness. And I'm saying this to you because I've done it. I've written those things. And as I look at it and think about John 17 and what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians, you just wonder at what God wants us to do. John Stott says it this way, that the, the disunity of the church is a visible contradiction to the greater reality of who we are in Christ. Or put another way, look at this, look at this cartoon. So it's a fun one. So you can see, most of you guys probably can't see, but it's, uh, it says churches and Christian movements throughout history, starting in 1 AD and just fracturing to everything, right? This tradition comes off this tradition, blah, blah, blah. This is a membership class. And then the person teaching it says, this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. <laughs> and then this little kid says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. That's ridiculous, right? That's insane, but it's true, right? How much do we build our identity in our churches or our denomination around we're the ones that finally got it right rather than looking at how we could love and serve others more broadly? Again, we can even use gospel centrality as a way of bludgeoning other people instead of a way of inviting people into a bigger view of who God is and what he's doing. Paul's response, though, is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's just saying, like, division has no place among you. The answer to all those things is obviously no. Christ can't be divided. And so if Christ can't be divided, and you're united to him, and united to everyone he's united to, what's your argument for division? What's my argument for division? What are some things that divide us today? There's a lot of them, right? Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to go into this because I don't want people to hate me. I like being liked. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if you think about today, at least in like some of the conservative evangelical circles, um, we have this big controversy going on with the social justice thing and all these derogatory comments going back, where, you know, every which way, right? Raise your hand if you've heard of this. So a good chunk of us, right? Um, raise your hand if you've taken a side. 
Raise your hand if you're right and you know the other side's wrong. <laughs> That's what we do, right? We just, the battle lines are drawn and we just dive in and we accept the vocabulary of the day and we just go. But let me, let me challenge us. If my identity is really in Jesus, grounded there, it gives me the ability to stand in the gap. It gives you the ability to stand in the gap. Because you can differ from me and you don't threaten my identity. I can actually be a minister of reconciliation or a peacemaker because I don't view you the way the world views you. I view you as an image bearer of God. And, and even if I think you need to be corrected, there's a way in which I can do that. So the social justice thing has gotten all this fever pitch stuff. And one of the things that keeps getting pressed is the church has a duty to stay out of political affairs. Now, I'm not even going to take a political position here. But, like, I'm not saying I want people endorsing presidents from, um, from the pulpit. But even that phrase, the church has a duty to stay out of political affairs. I'm trained as an historian and historical theologian, so I think in those categories. I think about unpacking and unveiling and working my way back and figuring out why are we using the language we use. So that phrase, the church has a duty to stay out of political affairs, I would argue doesn't exist in the history of the church until the 1830s. Let that sink in for a minute. We should always be aware of something that doesn't exist in the history of the church until the 1830s. So where in the American tradition does that phrase come in, you might ask? Well, it comes in first in the 1830s when the Cherokee, many of whom were Christians, the, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists were really effective in mission work, and God did an incredible revival among the Cherokee people. And even to today, a good chunk of Cherokee are, are professing Christians. They were being forced off of their lands illegally. They had treaties with the United States government, and they were being forced off their lands. But they're good American citizens, and they're Christians, and they respect the government, and so they argued their case all the way to the Supreme Court. Two Presbyterian missionaries came with them to stand by them while they were making this argument. And it's in the 1830s. And guess what? They won. They won their case. The Supreme Court of the United States decided that this was wrong and needed to be stopped. President Andrew Jackson ignored the Supreme Court's ruling and allowed vigilantes to force the Cherokee off of their lands onto the Trail of Tears. My wife's ancestors were on that trail, but, and, and the, the Presbyterian missionaries actually went with them. But in the midst of all this injustice happening, you had missionaries in all these denominations in the South going to their leaders and saying, this isn't just wrong on a human level, though it is. This isn't just wrong on a, on a, on a broad family of God level, though it is. These are supposed to be brothers and sisters in our own denomination, and we can't stand up for them? You know what they were told? Church has a duty to stay out of political matters. Then that gets formulated into what's called the spirituality of the church doctrine. Um, by the time you get to the Civil War. And you got Dabney and others that actually formally articulate that the church has a duty to stay out of all things political. Do you want to know the problem with that? Again, I think as an historian. Go back a few generations, and the cause of the American Revolution was being preached from so many Presbyterian pulpits that King George called it the Presbyterian Revolt. So if you're looking for summary categories... Again, on this theme of unveiling, if you're looking for summary categories, it could be said of the church in America that if the rights of white people, my people, are being oppressed, it's the duty of the church to take the lead and preach the cause of liberty. If the rights of non-white people are being oppressed, Cherokee and African Americans, it's the duty of the church to stay silent. Isn't that crazy? People using those phrases have no idea where they come from. But, but I can dive into the fray and, and point fingers and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. 
Or I can say, hey, can we have a deeper conversation about the history of our country? Give you another example. I was raised in a family that, you know, absolutely, you know, prejudice was, was wrong. It was not right. But there's still pathologies and prejudices that creep in any family. Right? My dad's little sister married an African-American man in 1968. Um, so this is a conversation in the family. But even with that, um, you remember a few years back when all the Civil War monuments and statues were being torn down. Um, and you had, again, battle lines being drawn. And the, and the battle lines being drawn in the culture, the church stayed away from it completely, didn't they? They just loved and served their neighbor. No, they didn't. They dove right in, right? People take positions. My dad was pretty fired up at it and said, this is removing history. Why are you going to do this? Like, and, and he's pretty angry and he's going to argue. So I could just dive into it with my dad. I disagree with him. I'll tell you why in a minute. I could dive into it and argue back. And then we leave and ang angry. But what I did was I said, I want to actually understand why this is happening. Why were these monuments put up? So I watched an hour and a half video by a park ranger. I would not recommend that. Uh, he's an expert on monuments and statues and such. And he says, if you want to know like a, a memorial or, or that kind of thing, you've seen these. They're like three foot by three foot statue or uh, cement blocks, and they have a bronze placard on it. It just says what happened here. That's what the government pays for. If it's a monument or a statue, some private party paid for it. So if you want to know what motivated it being put up, look at who paid for it and when they put it up. So I went and did that and looked at it with these Confederate things. Again, I'm trying to unveil. I'm trying to be a peacemaker. I'm trying to understand our history in a better way. And I went and did that. And turns out 75-plus percent of them, maybe 90% by some people's counts, they were put up right after Brown versus Board of Education in the 50s and 60s. Do you think they were put up to honor the war dead? Probably not, right? So I told my dad that. And my dad said, that can't be true. And I was like, well, just, just look. My dad called me back a day later and said, man, it's far worse than you said it was. You see the power that we have in unveiling? If my identity is rooted in Jesus, and I don't have to be threatened by you holding a different position than me, then I can step into the gap and I can kind of unveil. I say, there's obviously human brokenness going on here, and I can step in and say, okay, where am I not seeing things clearly? Where do we all need to see things more clearly? And how can I be a peacemaker in the midst of this? Or I can just dive into the fray, yell, argue, and do whatever else. We are at a time in our culture and a time in our world where these things are getting more and more and more divided. And we have a choice to make. Do we enter into the fray or do we take root in our identity in Christ? The church in Corinth had entered into the fray, dividing along all the same lines that their city did. And the apostle Paul said, it's not supposed to be that way among you. John 17, 21, that they may, this is Jesus' prayer for all future disciples, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's one of the most convicting, powerful, and encouraging verses in the Bible, I think. And I, I discount it every time I read it. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That we are supposed to have a unity like unto the Father and the Son. Good night. Who's, who, who's living that way? Raise your hand. Who, who, me first among them. I read that, and I'm like, well, that's not doable, so I'll just accept the discounted version of it. Here's another challenging thing. Do you think John 17 just applies to your own local church or denomination? Who's it apply to? Every believer. Crud if I'm really thinking about it. 
Do I really view other believers and say, I want to have a unity with you who's in a different tradition than me, who I don't like all your theology, but I want to have a unity with you that's like unto the unity that the Father had with the Son. Because I know that that unity is supernaturally wrought, and because it's supernaturally wrought, it will show the world that Jesus was actually sent by the Father. Direct connection to mission. Do I view my ability to love and serve and unite with other believers as directly connected to the mission of Jesus Christ? That's certainly the way Jesus was praying, isn't it? This is something we all have to take seriously and understand if we want to understand who God is and what he does. I'm going to read you one more thing in case um, politics is your thing. Um, I love this. It's from Political Reporter talking about the current cycle of how controversies work in our country. And again, I'm not taking a political position. I don't care if you voted for Trump or you're voting for Bernie. That's not the point. Well, actually, anyway, it's fine. <laughs> I do care, but I don't care in this particular moment. All right. So this is what he said. This is how the social media machine works in America. Step one, Trump throws an early morning Twitter bomb, usually but not always timed to Fox News and Friends fodder for reinforcement. The tweet bomb frequently hits fake news or some other social topic, often with social or racial undertones. Within minutes, thousands of Trump's Twitter followers retweet it, and the sparks fly in response. Step two, the outrage machine kicks in. The first hour of cable news show Morning Joe on MSNBC is consumed by reaction to either that morning's or yesterday's tweet bomb. But the real action unfolds on Twitter with scores of journalists and activists howling in protest. Step three, the cable beast awakens. MSNBC, CNN, Fox are basically 24-7 politics now, and the reporters who uncorked on Twitter sit alongside the hosts to dissect and condemn the Twitter bomb. They tweet the highlights, the rage builds, the cycle speeds. Step four, the fringes foment. Breitbart belts out a stream of stories, usually supporting Trump or mocking cable hysteria on the left. It pumps its greatest hits through Facebook, where both sides game the algorithm to play their team's emotional response. Twitter wars usually ensue. Step five, the final step. Opinions fly. By nighttime, MSNBC goes hard left, Fox goes hard right, peaking with their highest rated champions, Maddow on the left and Hannity on the right, tucking like-minded people in with soothing stories of how they were so right today. This is happening every single day in our country. And I promise you, I'm a pastor, that I've got people in my church that are getting sucked into the right or sucked into the left. I've got people in my family that are getting sucked in. Should we get sucked in? Does your identity in Christ just say, dive into the fray? What does your identity in Christ say if I'm rooted deeply? What would it look like to love and to serve and to be a peacemaker in the midst of this? What would it look like to stand in the gap in the midst of it? What would it look like to really build a, a unity of commonality instead of a unity of opposition to the other? Think about this. Now, again, I probably said some stuff that offended some of you guys, but, but if it offends you, that's fine. Correct me if I need to be corrected. I, I'd love that. But also, just think, is it reflected in the text? Is it true? Is it the Apostle Paul is pointing them to their deeper identity in Christ in the way that we need to be? So now the, the more encouraging parts. We're going to look at how Christ unites. Humanity was created, as I said, for a unity of commonality as image bearers of God. And we know sin and rebellion and brokenness have marred that. But there still is no other for us. So our world does a unity of opposition against the other. But if I'm in Christ, there is no other for me. 
there are only broken image bearers of God that need Jesus. And some of those broken image bearers of God that need Jesus have given their lives to Christ. They're called brothers or sisters, hard stop. Some of them are broken image, image bearers that have not yet given their life to Christ. But they're still image bearers. They're still those that are entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. And if you think about it this way, if the body of Christ is every tribe, tongue, and nation, no Jew or Greek, slave or free. There was no greater category of ethnic division in the ancient world than Jew and Greek. There was no greater category of socioeconomic division in the ancient world than, than slave and free. So Paul is saying that, that the church is every tribe, tongue, nation, every socioeconomic class, and every ethnicity. And if God is working and moving across this diverse body, across our country, across our cities, across our world, and my vision of Christ is a homogeneous people that are in my ethnic group or in my theological tradition, how big's my Jesus? It's this slipper. If I go to, to, to Malawi like I do about once a year or other places and sit at the feet of my brothers and sisters over there, it, it expands my vision of Christ. If you go over to the Pentecostal church and, and help them, you know, have them talk to you about prayer and whatever it is, right? It expands your vision of Christ. If you go to someone that was raised in a different socioeconomic or ethnic setting that you were, if you're white and you go to someone that was experienced, you know, institutional prejudice their whole lives, and, and they talk to you about how Jesus worked in their midst, it expands your vision of Christ. The more we engage with the wider body of Christ, the bigger Jesus gets because we see how God is working and moving across every tribe, tongue, and nation. So really we can say that we cannot know how big and full and amazing Jesus is without the diversity and the gift of the wider body of Christ. I need you, if you're different than me, to teach me about humanity and to teach me about God because there's something that I can't see that you can uniquely see. Right? It's, it, the, the Bible is wonderful. It's amazing. God teaches us so much through his Bible, through his word, through the study of his word, through all the spiritual disciplines. That is, that is a foundation of how we know God. But the other way scripture says we know God is through his body. And if his body's more than my thin little sliver, and I'm only getting the vision of my thin little sliver, I'm not getting the full Jesus. There might be something I'm missing, and if I want a richer and deeper Jesus, i got to look at someone that's different than me and not say, I'm looking for an excuse to dis distance myself from you. But I can look at you and say, you have something to teach me about humanity. You have something to teach me about God and who he is and what he's doing. This is what Christina Cleveland says in the book called Disunity in Christ. When our common identity becomes more important to us than our smaller cultural identities, former out-group members become fellow in-group members. They are treated like one of us, and we instinctively like them. Now, again, put this in the framework. There should be no out-group people for us. That is a social construct of our culture, not a kingdom value for the Jesus that laid his life down to bring us all together. God is teaching us over and over again that we need the diversity of the wider body of Christ. Acts 13 goes to the trouble of telling us the names of the leaders that were put in that church in Antioch. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean. Manaean's a rich guy raised and he's a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Saul and Barnabas are, are Jewish men. Uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, is from Central Africa. Lucius of Cyrene is, is from probably North Africa, I believe. All these guys are from different diverse backgrounds, and yet they're unified together. These guys would not be together in any other cultural context. But because of the love of Jesus, they're together. In a beautiful book uh, by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity, he talks about the sociological factors that led to the growth of the church. Obviously, God's doing it, but what methods did God choose to do it through? And one of the illustrations he uses is the city of Antioch. 
The city of Antioch was founded by Greeks and Syrians who hated each other. But because of military and economic advantages, they founded a city together. But it was a two-walled cities within a larger city. By the time the gospel gets there, they estimate there's at least 18 different factions in that city, socioeconomic and ethnic, living apart, right? They're, they're forced together, like a lot of our cities, forced together by necessity, but they hate each other, they divide from each other, and they don't reach across those bounds. But then the gospel gets there, and people understand more about who Jesus is, and people from all these factions are walking through town together. And they're not just being nice to each other. That would be cool enough. That would be amazing enough. But they're calling each other brothers and sisters. And it's because of this guy named Jesus. A slave in Corinth wouldn't so much look at a city official's eyes for fear of imprisonment or punishment. They were diminished. They were lower than low. They had no standing in that society. They were not to make eye contact. They were not to do anything. And yet... You have slaves being welcomed into the homes of leaders in the cities because of this guy named Christ. And Rodney Stark traces how God uses that dynamic to turn the whole Roman Empire on its head. The very concept of human rights, which everyone likes to tout and champion today, the very concept that every human being is entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love, that concept would not exist if Jesus had not walked the earth. We take it for granted that the Roman view of culture didn't win. The Roman view of culture was only one person's power mattered, the patriarch and the wealthy dude. Everyone else was serving the patriarchs in the Roman Empire. Everyone else was diminished or demeaned. So when the apostles come in, the apostle Paul, one of the primary champions, and they teach you that every single human being, man, woman, child, and slave, is an equal image bearer of God, that was a radical and revolutionary thing that subverted the whole order of the Roman Empire and changed the whole trajectory of the world. So even today, I don't like a lot of the decisions my government makes. But do you realize how crazy it is for the most powerful government on earth to be trying to protect those they perceive to be oppressed and marginalized in their midst? That doesn't happen. Powerful nations don't do that. Why is our powerful nation doing that? Because a lot of people that were in our history at some level believed in Jesus and introduced this concept of human rights. Again, in diminished ways and it expanded. Slavery was an atrocious affront to that. But at least there was this core idea that every single human being is entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. And Christians have stood throughout the ages championing this. Christopher Wright, who a, was a pastor at All Souls Church, in his book, Mission of God, says this. There is no reconciliation to God without reconciliation to one another. The gospel of the cross of Christ necessarily includes both dimensions of reconciliation, horizontal and vertical to God and to each other, or else you get neither. So any group of Christians who claim to be right with God but refuse to be reconciled with other Christians for whatever reason of ethnicity or race or color or denomination or whatever it might be, denies the gospel of the cross. And those that think they can evangelize more successfully by allowing people to hang on to sinful separations and prejudices and divisions are likewise denying the fundamental truth of the gospel. I want to close just by giving us a bigger and broader vision of what God, I think, can do if we take Scripture seriously. 
The book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with division and unity more than almost any other book because they were divided along the social and cultural lines. No book has more to teach us probably than this book for our current cultural moment. And one of the key things that the Apostle Paul shows the church is that the Lord's Supper has a power to it. When we come around the table, we are proclaiming our union with Christ and our union with each other. And that is supposed to be a means of grace that transforms us and then causes us to go out into the world and live differently as a result. Here's a quote from Michael Horton on this. How would our conduct toward each other be improved if we allowed the Lord's Supper to really impact the way we live? Could there be churches on either side of the tracks that took no account of each other, being baptized into capitalism instead of Christ, a political party instead of Christ, racism instead of Christ, cultural Christianity instead of Christ? Fill in whatever divides you from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have bias and prejudice that affect the way we relate to each other. In many respects, the churches in America are as divided along socioeconomic, racial, and generational lines as the church in Corinth. By being first and foremost the objective place where God meets and blesses his people, the Lord's Supper becomes also the place where a heavenly society on earth, a colony of Christ's kingdom, refuses to suspend its ever-widening encroachment on the kingdom of sin and death. The word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper form a single island of divinely created unity out of the world's divisive rivalries. Here is the place where all are one in Christ. It's not musical style that unites them, the socioeconomic or racial complexion of the community, the age or political orientation. Here in the pew, at the table, the only thing that matters is that we are united in Christ. My encouragement for us is that God would give us a big and broad and gloriously loving view of his kingdom. That we would look across what God's doing in the Bay Area, and God is moving in the Bay Area in powerful ways. There's more unity among our churches, I think, than there ever has been in its history. And, there's, and, and it's going to all come back to a John 17 vision. Are we praying for and working towards a union with the wider body? My challenge for each and every one of us this week is find someone that you don't like and you don't agree with and treat them like an image bearer of God that's been redeemed and renewed in Christ and treat them like a brother or a sister and sit down with them and ask them their story. And I just bet that God might teach you something you don't know. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of, uh, that you gave the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to love and serve you and a desire to lay our lives down for your kingdom and each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.